We're looking at Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Years ago, I went to a meeting, a minister's meeting about reaching your community. And the speaker did something unusual. She didn't stand behind a pulpit and lecture us about evangelism. Instead, she got us into a bus and took us to a local mall. And she said, I want you to go in and just the first 10 people you see, ask them, do you go to church? And if they say no, ask them, why not? So that's what we did. And we learned a lot. Now, this was in Pasadena. This is in Pasadena, Texas, a town with at least 100 churches, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, this, was not, this was not the campus of Rice University. This was not down Montrose Boulevard. This wasn't, uh, you know, in Austin, you know, someplace where there, you know, godless people flock. But um, that, was, that was a joke, um, sort of. So I thought I would, I would at least get three or four churchgoers on a, you know, in, in, in a mall in the middle of the Bible Belt. I went 0 for 10. And when I asked them, why don't you go to church, their response was pretty similar. It was, well, because churches are full of hypocrites. And they gave different basis for that, uh, for that opinion. Some said, well, you know, churches don't care about you. They just want your money. Or they said, church people think they know everything about God, and I know they don't have the answers. Or I've seen the way some of these people live. But it was basically the same. All church people are hypocrites. Now, raise your hand if you've heard that before. Okay, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand if you've said that before. The, the truth is, 85% of young adults, according to a book called Unchristian by Dave Kinnaman, 85% of young adults say most Christians are hypocrites. 47% of young adults who are Christians believe that, which should tell you something. Now, I wish that I would have had the answer back then. I wish I would have known to say, you know what, you're right. Churches are full of hypocrites because a hypocrite is someone who, who doesn't live up to the ideals they believe in, and therefore we all are hypocrites, and that's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus had to die for us, because we can't do it ourselves. I wasn't that sharp back then. Um, but here's the thing. I wonder if any of those people in that mall in Pasadena, or any of the people who talked to Dave Kinnaman for that survey, I wonder if any of them knew where the word hypocrite came from. Who gave us that term? It's actually a Greek word in origin, and originally it referred to actors in a play. You may be aware that in the, in the Greek theaters of long ago, the, the theaters were huge, and so the actors would often wear masks. These masks would be... Would, enable a person, even on the back row, they couldn't necessarily hear the dialogue, but they could say, oh, okay, I know why that, what that person is trying to convey because of the mask they're wearing. And Jesus took that theatrical term and he applied it to the religious realm. He said, if you pretend to be better than you are, pretend to be more righteous than you are, then you are a hypocrite. You're an actor. And that term has stuck and has gone far beyond just the church. We're in a series right now called The Man Who Changed Everything. We're talking about the impact Jesus has had on this world. Jesus is by far the most influential person who has ever lived. Even if you have never been to church, your life has been changed by Jesus in various ways. One of the ways Jesus has changed the world is in the way we look at religion. For one, what we've just been talking about. Before Jesus, religion was seen as purely external. The idea of calling someone a hypocrite because they act different than what they profess wouldn't have made any sense before Jesus. Before Jesus, religion was seen as something you do on the outside to get right with God or the gods. It wasn't about changing your heart. 
You could be the most despicable person, but as long as you gave the right sacrifices and, and repeated the right creed, then the gods would give you favor. That's the way people looked at religion. Now, after Jesus, most everybody, secular and religious alike, says, man, if your religion doesn't change your heart, you need to change your religion. Religion, if it's real, should change you internally. A second way Jesus changed uh, the world in regards to religion, when Jesus came along, most of the world was polytheistic. They believed in a multitude of gods. If you grew up in America, you got to junior high or so, and you studied, you studied Greek and Roman mythology. Remember that? Zeus and, and Apollo and all those guys. And here's the thing, if, if we can be honest, those are, those are fun stories as long as they're just stories. But if any of that was real, can you imagine how terrifying it was if our universe was ruled by beings such as those? I mean, they're like something out of a reality TV show. They're like drunk teenagers at spring break, and suddenly you give them ultimate power and authority and immortality. They're, they're not good. The Greek gods were powerful, but they weren't good. They weren't any more moral than you or me. In fact, in many cases, they were worse. And if you study the gods of the other regions around Greece and Rome and throughout the world, they were all pretty terrifying too. In fact, many of them were worse. Some of the gods of the nations that Israel displaced when they came into the promised land were monstrous. And the Jews were unique because they believed in ethical monotheism, which is a fancy way of saying they believed there was only one God and that he was good. See, to the Greeks... You didn't become good by being religious. It, it sounds funny to us today, but you, religion made you lucky. Philosophy could make you good, but religion couldn't make you good. Jesus came along and said, no, there's only one way to be good, because only God is good and only He can make you righteous. And so to this day, even if you meet someone who is completely irreligious, they'll say something like, well, I know that if there's a God, He cares about the people starving on the other side of the world. Why do they think that? Why do they think that if there's a God, he's actually good at heart? Because Jesus told us that, and that, that idea spread. But today I want to talk about a third way that Jesus changed religion, and that is in how religion is supposed to look at outsiders, how we look at those who are outside the faith if we follow his teachings. Now, here's the story, Luke chapter 13, verse 10 through 17. We'll start here. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, just imagine for just a moment this woman in a culture where a woman's currency, her ability to impact society and make a contribution was through her family. Here's a woman who, we don't know how old she was, but here's a woman who, however old she was, was not able to do what a woman was able to do in those times. She couldn't hold her children. If she had grandchildren, she couldn't hold those either. She couldn't keep the house. She couldn't serve her family. By the way a culture judged a person's worth in that time, she was worth less. She had no worth. Not only did she have her physical infirmity, which had to be incredibly difficult, to be bent over at the waist, the uncomfort of that, the, the, the inconvenience of that, she had no way to make a contribution. And we'll talk a little, in a little bit, there was an even further uh, indignity attached to this. Now, get this, verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. 
Let me ask you something. This was in a synagogue. This wasn't in the temple with thousands of people from all over Israel. This was in the synagogue, which means it was the local congregation. These were the people she met with every Sabbath day. Everyone there knew her. Everyone had seen her. Many of them had known her when she was able to walk upright. Don't you think that if someone in this room got well very suddenly uh, of something that had plagued them for 18 years, that we'd be happy for them? Look what happens. Verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader, that's the, the clergyman, basically, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I want you to know that had to be an incredibly awkward moment. Here's this synagogue, and they followed the leadership of this one man for years. He's a dignified man. He's dressed in the right clothes. He's got the position. He's got the authority. He rebukes the people. Why? Because according to their tradition, you could receive medical care six days of the week, but not on the Sabbath day. That was breaking God's law. And Jesus stands up and says, you're a hypocrite. Jesus, according to Luke, humiliated the leader of that synagogue in front of all his people. And this story is just one of many throughout the Gospels that illustrate the conflict, the constant conflict between Jesus and religion. It, it went on his whole life. You realize, don't you, it was religious people who put Jesus to death. It was religious people who conspired to have him executed, not not irreligious people, not atheists, not pagans. Now, why? I, I submit to you that there is a conflict between Jesus and religion to this very day. I submit to you that a lot of what portrays itself as Christianity is really more like those who crucified Jesus than like the teachings of Christ. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at the way Jesus changed religion, and the way religion is still lagging behind. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I more like Jesus or am I religious? Am I a follower of the one true king or am I just another religious person? Important question. Three differences between Jesus and religion. Number one, religion uses words to label others. Jesus used words to heal others. Religion uses words to label. Think about if you read the Gospels, how many of the names, how many of the labels the religious leaders of that day threw out. If they walked into this room, which they never would, but let's say you and I came into contact with one of them, they would look at us with a sneer and say, you uncircumcised Gentile dogs. They would say that very affectionately. That was their term for people who weren't Jewish. If, if you were a person who had a a profession, let's say, 
you earned your living in some disreputable way, they would call you by your profession instead of by your name. You weren't whoever your mother called you. You were a prostitute. You were a tax collector. They wanted to make sure you knew you were outside of the family of God. If you had committed some sin which they thought rendered you unfit for meeting in the synagogue, there were, there were sins that were so bad that you were not welcome in the congregation of God's people. And if you were one of those, you were simply called a sinner. And if your father had committed one of those sins or your mother, you were also a sinner. Your grandparents, same thing. That sin, that stain was generational. It passed down. It was inherited. They loved to label people. As for this woman in the story, she was struck with this infirmity. She was bent over at the waist. In addition to everything we'd said about how difficult her life was, keep this in mind. According to the way their theology worked, she was sick. She was crippled, not because of some illness, not because of some accident, but because God had judged her. She was crippled because she had done something wrong. Now, they didn't necessarily know what it was she had done wrong, although I'll bet they had their speculations. All they knew was, we serve a just God. If you're bent over at the waist and you can't straighten up and it's been 18 years, you must have done something really bad. Now, we'll let you continue coming to the synagogue, but just know you're not like us because look what God has done to you. And this is the way religion labels people. Jesus came along and Jesus was different. What does Jesus say to this woman? Five words that changed her life. Woman, you are set free. And I guarantee you those five words, those five words were more meaningful to her than all the thousands of words she had heard from her religious leaders up to that point. Jesus changed her life by speaking those words. And we see him do that all through the Gospels. It's beautiful, really, if you read the stories of interactions Jesus had with broken, hurting, lost people. Let me just give you a few examples. Here's a a wee little man. You know the song, right? A, A tax collector, a crook. And he has this yearning, this yearning to turn his life over to God so strong that he undignifies himself, climbs up into a tree like a little kid so he can get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus says, come on down from there. And then he says these words, Today, salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of Abraham. Healing words. You're welcome back into the family of God. To people who were struggling on the margin between life and starvation, he said, God sees every sparrow that falls, and you are more important to him than many sparrows. You matter to people who were struggling just to get things done, who had a a full plate and then some. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Do those words sound good to anybody else here? Anybody else here feel like they have a plate that's way too full? To a thief, a career criminal, who on the moment of his death, I mean, seconds, minutes from his expiring, turned his life over to God, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Healing words, words that drew people in, words that changed people's lives for good. Now you might say, well, wait a second, didn't Jesus also call people hypocrites and whitewash tombs and snakes and, and other terrible things? Didn't he label people as well? If you read those stories, if you read those stories, you'll see Every time Jesus said one of those things, he was talking to one of his fellow Jews. He was talking specifically to religious leaders. He never had those kinds of words 
for pagans. He never had those kinds of words for sinners. He never had those words for prostitutes and tax collectors. He didn't even have those kinds of words for Romans, even though the Romans had oppressed his people for generations and who, who practiced a religion which was godless and who practiced lifestyles that were perverse. And Jesus didn't label them. Why? He talked to his fellow Jews that way because they were part of the family and they should have known better. And people outside the family, he wasn't going to label them for acting like they believed in his God when they really didn't. Jesus used healing words on those who needed healing. For people who needed to be confronted, he confronted them. Let me just say this, and I hope you hear this even if you don't hear anything else I say. As, as a pastor, if you ever see me doing something that you know is wrong, please call me out. Is it going to hurt my feelings? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Please, please do it. Call me out. Use any language you want if it gets my attention. Okay? That is love. Jesus used healing words. Everything Jesus ever said, even the harsh things, he said out of love for the person he was speaking to. Second difference. Religion drives outsiders away. Jesus drew them in. Now, please understand, when I say religion versus Jesus, I'm not saying that religion is necessarily bad. I make my living as a representative of institutional religion. I'm glad you come to church. I'm glad you tithe. I hope you tithe. I don't know. That's between you and God. Here's the thing. Like any other good thing God has created, religion can become an idol. Religion can become destructive. It can become the worst thing on earth. And the religion of the religious leaders in Jesus' day drove people away from God. It was very good at drawing lines in the sand and saying, okay, if you are on this side of this line, then you're in the club, but everybody else is out. And then later on, they'd come back and say, okay, that last line wasn't quite restrictive enough. We're going to draw another line. Now, we're the ones that are inside. The rest of us, the rest of you are gone. The rest of you don't matter. The rest of you are merely fuel for the fires of hell. Religion was very good at that. It still is. We love having our little clubs. One of the, one of the examples Jesus gives to the, to the religious leaders of his day is he says, listen, congratulations, you guys are great at tithing. Not only do you give 10% of the crops in your field, you even go the extra mile. You, you tithe 10% of the herbs in your flower beds. Way to go. Good job. But I wish that you did that and practiced justice, justice and mercy and faithfulness and kindness. I wish that you were upright and religious, but at the same time liked people. That would be good. Uh, another time, he, he talked to them about how uncaring they were for their parents. I mean, this is ironic to us. We think of a good person as being someone who honors their father and mother, but the religious leaders of that day were well known for not taking care of their own elderly parents. And when people would come up to him and say, hey, how come you're not taking care of your mom, your dad? He'd say, well, you know, the money that I have belongs to God. I can't waste it, you know, giving it to my parents. God may require it of me someday. Jesus said, you're hypocrites. You're taking God's law and you're using it against the purposes God created it for. The example that we use in this story that applies to this story is the example of the Sabbath day. Now, is the Sabbath day in Scripture? Absolutely. It's one of the first things we read in the Bible. Genesis 1 says God rested on the seventh day after creating the world. Not because God was tired, because he was trying to establish a pattern. In the Ten Commandments, we're commanded one day out of the week, rest from your labors. Jesus came along and he said, 
You, you misunderstand this command. God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a gift to you. God created the Sabbath because he knows how tired you are. He knows how hard you work. He knows that burning the candle at both ends seven days a week will kill you. So you need to take a day off and just do anything but what you typically do. Do anything that refreshes your soul. Get in touch with me. Refresh your body, your mind, your heart. And yet the Pharisees, the leaders of the religion, had taken what was meant to be a mercy from God and had turned it into a burden. Folks, you understand that the law of Moses was, was small. It was short. It was, you can read it in just a couple of hours. They had taken it and they had added volume after volume of commentary. Essentially, they had taken, for instance, the Sabbath law, where God says, don't do any work on the Sabbath. And they said, well, that's not specific enough. We need to come up with some examples and some principles to help people understand. And so they had created law after law after law of how to, how to obey the Sabbath commandment. And so they would say, for instance, well, you can carry something that weighs this much, but any more than that, and that's called work. You're, you're bearing a burden, and you can make sure you don't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because you might see a, a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and that's grooming. You can't do that. Don't spit on the Sabbath day because then you might be tempted to scuff your feet in the dirt, and that's like plowing, and that's work. Don't do it. I'm not making these things up. And one of the laws they created was you can't receive medical care on the Sabbath. If your life's in jeopardy, that's an exception. But if you're just sick and you see a doctor, or you see a healer, you can't go to him on the Sabbath day. You have to wait until the next day because this is the Lord's day. Now, was that in the Bible? Was that in the commands of God? No. They made it up on their own because to them, that was a way of saying who's in and who's out. By the way, by the way, we have that same thing in our churches when I was growing up, and maybe some of you can identify, when I was growing up, a person could be considered righteous in, in most of the churches I was aware of, could be considered a good, godly person, could be elected deacon or Sunday school teacher or whatever, and in their heart, they could be, they could be a racist, they could be a person of, with a short temper, they could be a gossip, but if they drank alcohol, nope. If they used bad language, no, 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 no. You know, if there were certain sins that were over the line, but... But then certain sins, that, well, that's just part of being a human. The Pharisees had this double standard. And Jesus called them on that. He stabbed them with the dagger of truth and it hurt. He said, listen, listen, the law of God says that you can unhitch your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath day and take it out to water and, and let it go so it can graze and you're not breaking a law. Do you realize this very morning before you came to the synagogue, you did that very thing. You watered your livestock. You fed them. You made sure they were okay. And yet this woman standing here today upright for the first time in 18 years is more important than all of your livestock put together, and yet you're angry about her being healed? You think God is angry? Jesus said you have a, a, an incredible double standard. What double standards do we have? Think about it. It's very, very convenient for us to be strong on the commandments we're good at keeping and ignore the commandments that step on our toes. It's very, it's very convenient and comfortable for us to be angry and indignant at the world for committing sins that we don't have any problem with. Meanwhile, we're pretty silent on the sins that we continually stumble into. So ask yourself the question, what makes me angrier? 
The fact that people out there in the world who aren't even followers of my God act like people who aren't followers of my God? Or the fact that I've been a follower of Jesus for all these years and I've still got a long way to go. Which one makes me more upset? Which one causes me to shed tears? Which one causes me to pray? Or to ask the question another way, how often do I do anything to draw people to Christ? You see, Jesus, talk about labels. Jesus had a label he was given by the religious leaders. They called him many things, but one of their favorite labels was He's a friend of sinners. He can't be a true rabbi. He's certainly not the Messiah because he's a friend of sinners. And they meant that as an insult. To them, they couldn't think of anything more insulting than that. And Jesus' word is a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, I'm a friend of sinners. That's what I came for. I came to love the people who are lost. I came to be a doctor to those who are sick. Again, ask yourself the question, what do I do every day? What do I do that is intended to draw people closer to God, intended to influence people into His family. Because when we do those things, that's when we're being like Jesus. Third question, or third difference. So religion uses words to label, Jesus used words to heal. Religion drives outsiders away, Jesus drew them in. Third difference, religion breeds self-righteousness, but Jesus made us righteous. See, religion gives us this idea that we're better than we really are because we use these rules and, and, and these rules and these rituals. We walk out saying, you know, I bet, I bet that guy over there didn't get up early on a Sunday morning. In fact, I know he didn't. I heard him, I heard him partying at his house 2 o'clock last, this morning. I got up early, and I wanted to sleep in. I wanted to go out to IHOP at 10 in the morning. I wanted to... I wanted to watch the NFL pregame show. No, no, no. I came to church, and, and I, I don't drink or cuss or chew. I don't go with girls that do. I'm better. We love feeling superior, don't we? It's interesting, isn't it? You can really tell what you value based on the insults you use. You can really tell what's important to you based on what you use to judge others. If you're really proud of your physical appearance, you probably tend to look down on people who don't take care of themselves. If you're really, really proud of your education and your intellect, you look down at people who can't use good grammar or who didn't go to school. If you're proud of your work ethic and your success, you look down at people who can't hold a job or people who, in your mind, are losers. To the Pharisees and the scribes in those days, nothing was more important than their own personal perception of righteousness. So that's what they criticized people for. They'd walk around saying, Oh Lord, thank you for not making me like him. And then Jesus showed up. God in human flesh, the God they believed they were worshiping, showed up one day in the body of this Nazarene carpenter and said, Guess what, guys? You're not righteous. You're not righteous at all. I don't consider righteous the person who judges others. I consider righteous the tax collector who beats his own chest and says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Which leads you to a conclusion, which is very uncomfortable for many of us. The true follower of Jesus is not someone who is necessarily more moral than someone else. 
You want to you know who's a real Christian, what the sign of a true Jesus follower is? It's not that they're better at following commands. It's not that they're more moral. It's not that they uh, have a stronger character. The difference between a true follower of Jesus and anyone else is the follower of Jesus is more aware of his own sin than the non-follower is. More aware of his own sin and his own need of grace. He's more broken by his sinfulness. The, the true follower of Jesus, here's what separates them. They know they can't save themselves. That's righteousness. Lord, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Jesus healed this woman, not because she deserved it, not because she was the best person in that room. He healed that person, he healed this woman because she needed it. One of the best things that can ever happen to us is when we realize how desperately sick we are and we call on the, the, the great physician to bring us healing. And here's the irony. Here's, here's the real irony of the story. Jesus was the only truly self-righteous person who ever lived. Religious leaders were great at being self-righteous, walking around touting themselves, blowing the trumpets when they would give a donation, talking to others about all the good things they'd done. Jesus could have done that. Boy, he could have talked and talked about all of his own righteousness. He could have walked around preaching about, look at me, I have never sinned once. When I was in the wilderness, I hadn't eaten in 40 days. The devil tried to get me to eat a piece of bread. Any of you would have done it. I didn't. People have insulted me. I haven't lashed out at them. People have criticized me. I could have snapped my fingers and turned them all into chickens. I didn't do that. Look at me, I am righteous and you are not. He could have done that. The day of his trial, when the Sanhedrin, these 70 men respected by Israel as being religious leaders, cornered Jesus and were accusing him, he could have stopped it all and said, okay, quick question, how many of you, how many of you in this room have ever sinned? Come on, raise your hands, I know, raise your hands. You too, Caiaphas, you've sinned as much as any of them. Guess what, I haven't at all, not once. So who should be judging who here? Jesus could have said that. There's a big part of me whenever I read the gospel story that wants him to say that, that wants him to just blast those guys and say, how dare you accuse me? You're the sinners. I'm the righteous one. But he didn't. He kept silent. He let them say awful things about him, untrue things about him. He let them bind his hands and beat him and, and nail him to a cross. But why? Why would he do that? I wouldn't do that. Why did he? Christian shared this scripture with you last week. Did a great job last week, by the way. And I'm going to share it with you again. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's one of the most mind-blowing scriptures, and I, you would do well to sit and ponder it for a while. But let me, just, let me just say, that verse tells us about two different transformations. One was the transformation of Jesus, that in that one moment of time, in that one, in that one window of history, the perfect Son of God exchanged His perfection for absolute sinfulness. So not only was He a sinner at that moment in God's eyes, He was sin. And so all of a sudden, for the first time ever... God looked down on his precious son, and he didn't see his son anymore. He saw, he saw my laziness and my lies and my hatefulness and my selfishness, and he saw all of your sin as well, and he saw murder, and he saw rape, and he saw, he saw indignity and, and awfulness and evil in one person. 
And the righteous, perfect, beautiful wrath of God, the only answer to the sin of the world, the the furnace of God's wrath was poured out on that sin right there in time so that it wouldn't be poured out on us. He became sin. So he couldn't walk around talking about his righteousness. He couldn't walk around saying, hey, you better leave me alone because I'm, I'm justified. He couldn't do that because he was becoming sin. And the second transformation in that story is he did it so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is the part that really blows our minds. Now when God looks at at me and at you, he doesn't see someone who fails time and time and time again. He doesn't see someone who falls short. He doesn't see someone who curses his name. He sees the perfection of his son. He sees the straight A's instead of my F's. He sees the victory instead of my defeat. Because of grace, I am the righteousness of God, and so are you in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself the question, ask yourself the question, am I a follower of Jesus, blood-bought, full of grace, desperately needing God, constantly calling on his name, constantly aware of how much further I have to go, but absolutely grateful for where I am and longing to see my neighbor come to know Christ, whatever it takes. Am I a follower of Jesus or am I just another religious guy? The world's got more than enough religion. The world needs Jesus. So which one am I bringing to the world? Ask yourself that question. And again, I'm not asking you to answer the question. I'm asking you to pray to God and ask his Holy Spirit to show you the truth about which one you are and where you need to go.